to the Word of God for our instruction. We turn to the book of the Revelation, the last book in the Old Testament, the book of the Revelation and the first chapter. It begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of our Lord and God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us hear the word of Almighty God. This is the word of the Lord. Come, let us hear God's infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. The Lord help us, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his precious word this night. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth. They that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother, and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the island that is called the Isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And of the keys of hell and death, write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his most holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word to us here tonight and all to the glory of his precious The congregation, I ask you now to please turn your prayerful attention to the book of the Revelation. The Revelation, as we have read in the chapter 1, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll begin a series of studies now in the book of the Revelation. And as we do so, what we will find is that there are a number of doctrinal subjects that will come up. All of Scripture is full of doctrine. It is full of teaching. Will our trust learn doctrines in a very natural and unforced way? We'll study the Word of God as we study the Scriptures, as we open up the book of the Revelation. We will come across such doctrines as we will begin to see tonight the doctrine of the church. You notice in this chapter there is nothing said of Israel, but it is spoken of concerning the church of Jesus Christ, the Israel of God. Then we will think, as we study the book of the Revelation, of the doctrine of the Trinity, especially and even in this chapter here, the doctrine of Christ, who is Christ, the second person of the Godhead. And then we'll think of the doctrine of the sanctification of believers. And that really is seen time and time again. You've noticed already as we've read this epistle how it is addressed to the seven churches. And to each of the exaltations, to each one of those churches, there is a word, a reoccurring statement made by the Lord Jesus Christ, he that overcometh. Every true child of God is an overcomer. It simply means we overcome our sin. There are warnings and admonitions to each of the church, but he that overcometh, there is a sight of the aspect of heaven to each and every one of them. They shall inherit the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Who are the ones that overcome? The ones that love him. And they are the ones that love him because he loved them. And they will overcome. Faith worketh by love. And then we will see doctrines such as true biblical eschatology. That is, the study of the end time of things. Some people believe in strange things. When they read the book of the Revelation, we see Judgment Day appearing seven times. Are there seven Judgment Days? I don't think so. The Bible speaks of one Judgment Day. The premillennial view is not consistent with Scripture. We believe in what we call an amillennial view, that there is one Judgment Day, there are scenes leading up, seven scenes leading up to a judgment day. They are what we call synchronous. They are different views of the same thing happening. As it were, we could imagine we're heading towards Hemel Hempstead town center. And we could take a picture of every lamppost. Or we could take a picture of trees along the way. And those seven views give us what we could call a panoramic view of what is taking place until that final judgment day. They are not seven different judgment days, but they are giving us a panoramic view of the end times. And we are in the end times. We are in the last days. And we'll see that in our studies. The book of the Revelation is full of symbolic language that you simply cannot take literally. And we're told that already in the first 
chapter here, we're told about seven candlesticks which represent the seven churches. We're told about seven angels. We're told about the seven spirits. It's full of biblical metaphor and symbolic language. And then we'll find in the book of the Revelation the doctrine of hell. In fact, the doctrine of everlasting punishment. See what I mean? It's full of doctrine. So we'll examine these doctrines as we study the scriptures and we'll consider the doctrine of predestination and election, the doctrine of human total depravity, total human depravity. It's here in the book of the Revelation, the doctrine of effectual calling and irresistible grace. These are all here. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, we could say. And then the doctrine of judgment day. And then we will see, finally, the doctrine of the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. But as we study, we're not going to look at this in a simply dry doctrinal way. But we'll, with the Lord's help, open verse by verse, line upon line. And this evening as we begin, I want to, first of all, give an introduction, and we'll look Firstly, at the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. It comes out straight away in the verse 1. And then we'll look at the doctrine of Christ, of his church. These are wonderful themes, really, that strike us in this first chapter. So this evening, we've read already that John is on the island of Patmos. The time now is somewhere around 98 AD, and he is suffering for the sake of Christ. And he is in the spirit, we read, in the Lord's day, on the Lord's day. And there is a Lord's day. The Lord of the Sabbath still has a day. Hebrews Hebrews 4, verse 9, there remaineth a Sabbath keeping for the Lord's people. The Lord of the day will have his people gather together on the Lord's Day. And we pray that every day, not just on the Lord's Day, we'll be in the Spirit. We pray that tonight we'll be in the Spirit as we come to God's Word. And he, by his Spirit, will open these things up to our hearts and to our minds. Have a look there with me as we begin. First of all, I want you to notice the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. And This is marvelous as we open up the book of the Revelation. Notice the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many people say, well, this is the revelation of John. But it's not, friends. John was given to see these things by the Spirit. It is the revelation given to Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, notice there, to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. You notice there, first of all, The doctrine or the teaching, when we use the word doctrine, what we simply mean is the teaching. It is the teaching here of God's absolute sovereignty. The things which must shortly come to pass. God is not a God of chance, friends. He is a God who has decreed all things whatsoever should ever come to pass. And they are foretold in the Scriptures. It is called the book of the Revelation. It is the perusa. It is the unveiling of truth. It's not a book that is meant to conceal just the word itself, revelation, to reveal the things that are shortly to come to pass. And this would be a great encouragement to John, the last living apostle, All of the apostles, it's believed by now, apart from John, have suffered martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ. And here John is on the island of Patmos suffering. There's already mentioned one of the martyrs, Antipas, in the next chapter, who've suffered for Christ. It's believed that he was poured into a, uh, that he was put into a cauldron of boiling oil. The things that they did, the Christians were horrific. John here is 
given these truths, that he may be encouraged and that he might encourage the churches also, and that they must press on in the things of Jesus Christ. Now, these seven churches are representative of all churches. And you will find these problems within these churches very common, even in churches today. The fact of the matter is, sin hasn't changed. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? The sins and the difficulties Christians had then, we have now today. But God is able to keep us and to present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. To God only wise, says Jude. Now, you notice there, which must shortly come to pass. Here we have the assertion that God will bring these things to pass. There in Isaiah 46, the verse 9, we read, Remember the former things of old, says the Lord, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet come or done, saying, My counsel shall stand And I will do all my pleasure. God has said that he declares what will come to pass because he has determined it. And what God has determined cannot be thwarted. He does according to his will, according to the armies of heaven. And God will be glorified even amongst the heathen. Psalm 46. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we read, For God hath not appointed us to wrath. Think of it. He's speaking there to Christians. Christians have been appointed from all eternity, not to wrath, but to salvation. That a wonderful thing. God has loved his people with an everlasting love and therefore has determined all things. We are told even, In the scriptures, even the wicked are made for the day of destruction. They are appointed, they are vessels fitted for destruction, says Paul in Romans 9. For God hath not appointed us, as Christians, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. What an encouragement, dear friends. If we are Christians and we know forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, how has this all been? Because God from all eternity, my dear friends. Just turn with me to Romans 8. You notice there in the verse 29, we read, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. There we have predestination and foreknowledge of God. How could God predestinate? Because God is sovereign and is determined everything. From every leaf falling from every tree, from every animal that is ever born, from every creature. Paul tells us in Acts 17 that the bounds of our habitation have been determined by God before all eternity. He knew where we would be born. He he knew our parents and our grandparents, of course, because he, he knew our first parents. And if you just look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was determined where he would be born in Bethlehem. Who would be his parents? How he would die. That he'd be crucified and that he'd be raised on the third day. How is all that possible? Because God has predetermined all things. The book of the Revelation begins with an absolute sovereign God. And that is so encouraging for us. John, the things that are happening to you are happening because God has determined them. If we find ourselves here tonight, God has determined it. There was Lydia listening to the preaching of the word. And the Spirit of God opened the heart of Lydia so that she received the things which Paul spoke of. It's amazing, isn't it? We think 
of the web of time that he wove in our life. What an encouragement that is. For whom he did foreknow, Romans 8, 29, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see the golden chain of five there, what the theologians called the golden chain of five. William Perkins spoke and wrote extensively on this subject. Reformers have. This is glorious. Five is a, is a wonderful number and it depicts, doesn't it, grace. You think of the grace of God in predestination, in foreknowledge, predestination, and so on. All the way from beginning to end, even unto glorification, it is all of God. Why? Because the Lord has said in Romans 9 verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Even before one did good or one did evil, the Lord chose the one over the other. Why? Because he said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Notice there Romans 9, 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That is, in God picking one over the other? No, God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Who made one to differ? God did. Paul is speaking in context with many of Israel who are perishing without Christ. Is it because God has failed in his promises, says Paul in the opening of Romans 9? No. The promises of God are sure. And not all Israel are Israel. But the, those of faith. And if we have faith, it's the gift of God. Because he's been given us a new heart so that we may have faith and exercise repentance toward God. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? So we have here, first of all, the things that shall shortly come to pass. And what are they? Everything in this book is declared by God, who has determined all things. Now you notice something very striking. And if you're here tonight, and you're reading the Word of God, it's a good thing. But I want you to notice the warning. But there's also an encouragement with it in verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of, of this prophecy, and keep those things. You say, and there are many, of course, that say, Ah, well, salvation. Who then is going to be saved? Must be left to chance. Nothing is left to chance. Notice what it says. Blessed is he that readeth. First of all, God always brings his word into the hands of his people. They blessed. They hear. But don't stop there. Look at what the text says. And keep those things. Many will hear but many will not keep. What is the only reason we keep is because we are kept. Isn't it? Kept by the power of God through faith unto the end. 1 Peter 1, 5. Because children are kept. Notice, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. And those who hear really know that the time is at hand. And they've been awakened to the fact that they are unworthy sinners. Unworthy of such a gracious God. And they love him. Because he loved them. And they know their sins are forgiven in him. And they know they have eternal life. Do you remember the context there in Luke 11? When the Lord Jesus Christ, he casts out a man that is full of devils. And they accuse him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of doing the work in the power of Beelzebub. And there's a woman in the crowd that says, Blessed be the womb that bare thee, and the paps that gave thee suck. And he said, Nay, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. And you have the same words here. That 
hear and keep these things. Luke 11, verse 28. But he said, yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. That woman was full of praise and full of adulation of Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he said, no. It's not about my mother. Blessed be the womb that bare thee, Lord Jesus, and the paps that gave thee suck. Blessing doesn't come from human instrumentality, but the very one who is the word of God and they who keep the word of God. And we only keep the word of God when the heart has been made new. Think of the analogy there, where he addresses the Pharisees and he says, you like them. You like the man who's, as it were, he's got religion and uh, he's just cleaned up a little bit. But then other devils come in and the man is many times worse. That's you. But when Christ comes, he that is stronger than the strong man, Christ has power over that heart. When he comes to live in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we are changed. And we hear and we keep the word of God. So you see there, first of all, the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. And then also the doctrine of the elect hearing and keeping the word. Verse 3, the elect will hear. The elect will keep it. They blessed. And you must know that. If you're blessed, you really want to hear. There are many people who want to go to church just to sing, just to come for entertainment. They want to come for social reasons, but they don't want to hear the word of God. And they won't want to keep God's word. In fact, they, they're not interested in even receiving it. But those who are the Lord's hear it, keep it. They are blessed. Now, we have in verse 4 the doctrine of the church, one of the aspects of that. I mentioned in this first chapter, the last book of the Bible, there's nothing mentioned of Israel, the nation Israel. But you have the church spoken of over and over and over again. Do you not see that? The church and Jesus Christ is the focal point of this chapter. In fact, we could say the primary focal point is the absolute sovereignty of God. And my dear friends, that is the real ballast for the soul. Now, what do I mean by the ballast of the soul? You've heard of the old ships that went to America back in the days of the pilgrims, such as the Mayflower. You've ever been to Plymouth? You've seen that place where you can stand and see where the Mayflower was set sail to those foreign shores. And down, deep down in the ship were places where barrels could be taken down into the ship of water to give it stability so that when the wind and the waves tossed that vessel upon the mighty oceans, it wouldn't capsize. And in the same way, you know, the great ballast for the Christian, the ballast for the soul is God's sovereignty. And we, as John is to see that here, that the church will suffer. But God is on his throne. And that throne never for a moment twitches or shudders or shakes. But God is on his throne. And you notice that not only is Christ upon his throne, and we'll see it in the subsequent chapters, but Christ is also amidst the churches. He is walking amidst the candlesticks. And that's such a comfort. He's not only in the hearts of his people, but he's amidst the congregation of the believers. Did he not say, where two or three are gathered in my name, lo, am I there in the midst? If you agree anything on earth, it's agreed in heaven. Whatever is sealed and bound amongst my people, where my spirit is, 
that is sealed and confirmed in heaven. For my spirit dwells there amongst God's people. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. You notice there in First Revelation 1 verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And of course the region here is Asia Minor. Greatly persecuted. Grace be unto you and peace from him. Now of course he could have addressed other churches, but seven, it was there within uh, that area, that corpus. But seven represents complete. Now, of course, it's symbolic here. And what you will see to these seven churches are seven things that the Lord needs to address. We'll see this in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But notice here, the greeting is to the churches there in Asia. Grace unto you and peace from him, which is, this of course is the Lord Jesus, who is the I Am. He was dead, but is alive forevermore, and which was, and which is to come. What an assurance. He is coming again. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, the number seven here, as I said, is symbolic of perfect or complete. The number seven here occurs, and you'll notice throughout the book of the Revelation, again and again, through the apocalypse, where it symbolizes this completeness. And it indicates the church throughout as the full span of its existence to the very end of the world. Because as you'll notice as we get near to the end of the book, it's just not to these seven churches. It's to the churches throughout all the world, as we'll see, where the gospel is preached, where the angels on the four corners of the earth call the elect out from amongst this world, not just to these seven churches, but we'll see that in the chapter 8 and the chapter 10, that it concerns all churches throughout all ages. And you'll notice uh, later on in Revelation 7 and also in Revelation 14, that it speaks of a number which no man can number, not just seven churches. You will read of 144,000, and you'll read of the, those from the Old Testament and those of the New. You'll read of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone on which the church is built. These all subsist in the seven. Seven meaning complete. You'll notice also it says, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, it is, we must say this is one of the perhaps the most difficult to determine from all the scriptures what the seven spirits are. Now, there are several interpretations to this. And uh, first of all, I want you to notice it says in Revelation 3.1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And of course, we know the seven stars from this chapter are his ministers. I know thy works. And then you come again to Revelation 4, 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And they were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You see the interpretation or the, the, the meaning is given again there. And then you turn to Revelation 5, 6. And beheld, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and the midst, of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Notice, having seven horns. That symbolizes power, as we will see. And seven eyes, all-seeing, omniscient, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, I think there we get some meaning as to what it may possibly mean, but I will not be dogmatic on this. Let me suggest to you, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 11, and here speaking of Christ, who was to come. And of course, if Christ has the seven spirits, and if he has seven eyes, and we're imagining here a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, it's, if you were to imagine that, a very grotesque figure. But of course, it's significant and symbolic concerning Christ. Isaiah 11, you notice 
there are seven things of the Spirit of Christ spoken of here. And here is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ to come into the world. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And we know this is Christ, because that's spoken of in Isaiah 53. And a branch, there, capital B again, found in Zechariah, isn't it? In uh, chapter 3, spoken of the branch, shall grow out of his roots. Now notice, seven things here concerning Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord, number one, shall rest upon him. Secondly, the Spirit of wisdom. Thirdly, an understanding. Fourthly, the Spirit of counsel. Fifthly, might. Sixthly, the Spirit of knowledge. And seventhly, the fear of the Lord. And we could say all these things are true of Jesus Christ. Those seven aspects of Christ, he who is perfect in every way. Now, I'll not be dogmatic on that, but I suggest to you that is a very strong possibility. And of course, that is true of Christ. There are seven aspects of the Spirit of God which he has that marking the perfect Spirit of God, fully endued and endowed with the Spirit of God. And so you notice there in Revelation 3, 1, Christ is described as having the seven spirits of God. And it, it, again, in the original, it is with a capital S, not small s as such as our spirit. So I offer you that. Uh, but again, we'll not be dogmatic on that subject. I don't think it's a salvific matter, uh, but I do believe that's probably the most accurate, certainly the one I've heard. Now you notice, he carries on to speak of Christ in several ways. Not just, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, verse 5, and the first begotten of the dead. You see, he's both, and the prince of the kings of the earth. That is Christ in all of those aspects, as well as that spirit, having the seven spirits, it is speaking of Christ, so much to speak of Jesus Christ concerning the church that he loves. Notice, unto him that loved us. Again, speaking of who loved us. Christ, says the Apostle Paul, loved me and gave himself for me. Our God is not an impersonal God. He had his affection set upon Paul, upon John, upon you if you truly are born again. He did not come simply for a number, but he came for everyone whom the Father gave. I know my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice, and they come to me, and I give them eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? And to him that loved us, not only that, but washed us from our sins in his own blood. Peter says he bare our sins in his own body. And by his blood, friends, we are washed and cleansed and made right before a holy God. Now you notice, as Paul, as John here speaks of, in verse 6, and that made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. What a position of elevation. Remember what he said to his disciples, that they'll reign with him. And we're, we believe in what we call the priesthood of all believers. You know, there's no such thing as priests now. In the New Testament, there are pastors and teachers. But every one of us, in a sense, is a priest offering up himself, as Paul says. Doesn't he, in Romans 12, offer up yourselves as living sacrifices? Not a dead sacrifice, but you are the Lord's priest. Remember, as Israel were called in Exodus 19 to be a royal priesthood. This is what Peter says, doesn't he? He says, but you, brethren, as living stones are, are, are being built up into Jesus Christ to offer up yourselves. Well, 
kings and priests unto God and his Father. There's one high priest now. We don't go to a pope. The Bible knows nothing of the pope. But Jesus Christ, there's one high priest who's in heaven, who sits at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father. And the Father said, sit down now at my right hand till I make all thine enemies thy footstool. That's where he is. And it's made us kings and priests unto God. You see, the Christian life, friend, they may say is one of serving. That's what the priest did. You know, we're not called to serve ourselves, but we're set free from sin to serve him as priests and kings. You know, it's, a, it's not a beggarly service. We're called to royalty. We're called to reign with him forever and ever. We will have crowns, as it were, in glory, but we will give him all the glory. And we will say, not unto us, O Lord, but unto thee. He hath made us kings and priests, verse 6, unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It's always the way, isn't it? Ever in heaven. We'll never be singing praise to ourselves, but we'll be singing praise to him. How wonderful it is to give thanks to God. I'm, I'm sure like you. We never want to receive praise. We're thankful for people that may appreciate us. And that's always good to express one's appreciation for someone else. But you know, we always say in the end, thank you, brother. Thank you. And praise be to God. For he has worked this in me. He has worked it in you. And that is surely the sign of one that is born of God. Now, so you see, there are just a few doctrines introduced to us as we begin this Book of the Revelation. Now you see, next we see the doctrine of his return. And by the way, there's no body snatching here. Some secretly taken away. But we don't believe that. It's not what the Bible teaches. Yeah, we know what Luke says. Or rather, the Lord says in Luke, two will be grinding at the mill, but one taken. It simply means there's going to be a separation. Two in the bed, one taken, the other one left. That's simply all he's saying. You notice here, it says, every eye will see him. When Christ comes, it's not going to be a secret rapture, as we will see. Some strange phenomena, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, that supposedly happened in 1903 and earlier, and supposedly again, just before the First World War and after the Second World War, all these times that supposedly Christ would come, but has never come. But it says here, every eye will see him. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Now notice, and they also which pierced him. What does that mean? It means that there will be a general resurrection. Did he not say that in John chapter 5? Behold! That hour is coming, he said, in which all in the grave shall come out of the graves. When he comes, every eye will see him. We have presented already, just as foretastes of what we will study in the book of the Revelation. Nothing is going to contradict here, my dear friend. Let me assure you all. There's no contradiction in the word of God. What we will see here, as we study the scriptures further, that there is a general resurrection when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him. Imagine that. All the centurions, all the gods, everyone. Judas will be there. Pontius Pilate, Herod, Pharaoh will be there. Everyone that has ever lived will stand before Christ on that day. They also which pierced him and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, 
Amen. John doesn't say, that's unfair. It's wrong. My friend, it has to end. Because this world is a Christ-hating world. It's a God-hating world. And it's a world that hates the church of Jesus Christ. You go to some parts of Africa, and you see what they're doing to Christians. How their houses are being burned. You go to China. You go to various places in the world. And you'll say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. It has to be. The Spirit and the Bride say, come, Lord Jesus, as we will read in the closing of this book. We say, come, Lord Jesus. And you know, when the wicked are judged, we will have a perfect hatred for sin. And we'll not mourn our unsaved family. Because we will see as God sees, for we shall be like him. We will understand. But not till then will we know how much we owe God for his sovereignty in saving us, in calling us. And you notice here, he says, I am Alpha. It's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And Omega, the ending. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Now just a few things I want you to see. Here John, verse 10, is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he says, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Here, the first vision he truly sees is Christ, saying, I am the Alpha. The voice of Christ was like a trumpet. Loud, majestic, regal, glorious. When a king was given entrance into the court, it was with a trumpet. We read, we read, didn't we, how the trumpet sounded when David was worshipping the Lord. Worthy of a king. But his voice was like a trumpet. But yet, to John, it's a soft voice in a sense. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Now the Lord knew, because he is sovereign, that as he, this letter was sent to each of the churches that the word would spread to all the churches. And it was. The church was in Jerusalem received the word. Churches down through the ages. But this was the mode in which God was going to transmit his word. Did you know that by just the first few centuries that the word of God was in many languages already, over a hundred languages already. Thus God's word is enduring. He has promised to preserve it through all generations. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now you notice he has a vision of Christ. And uh, I just want to begin with this here this evening and we'll, we'll close. But I want you to see Christ's concern, as John no doubt has a great concern for the church as a whole, not just one church. Now we know John was at Ephesus. We know this from the scriptures and extant biblical literature is full of it. And all of the church fathers point to the fact that John, in his last days, was at Ephesus. And it could be heard John being carried on a stretcher to the church there. Little children love one another, and so on. But it wasn't just the church at Ephesus, and it's, of course, the first named here in the book of the Revelation. And this is encouraging, isn't it? Because surely this would have been the church that would have especially been on John's heart and mind, the church at Ephesus. 
but all the churches are represented here. But Christ, walking in the midst of his churches, comforting the churches. But John, first of all, has a vision of Christ, this mighty one. Verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks. He didn't see Christ at first. But then notice verse 13, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one unto, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with the paps, with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes was a flame of fire, there, setting forth his omniscience, eyes as it were, penetrating eyes, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. So this formidable figure. It's interesting, you know, when we read the book of Daniel, we read of the figure of man. Remember how Daniel in that vision is given a figure of man, but then the rock smites the man, doesn't it? To pieces, but it's the rock. And that rock represents Christ and his kingdom. This one is mightier than man. He overcomes. We see here that this very one had in his right hand seven stars. Isn't that wonderful? We're told what these stars are. They are his ministers. That's a wonderful thought for me here tonight. We're told that right at the end. Notice the seven candlesticks, which the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now we will see that the angels represent the ministers of the churches because when you go to each of those epistles, it says to the angel of the church. Now the word angel simply means messenger. So if you look it up in the Greek, it means messenger, to the messengers of the church. And believe me, there's no angels in the church. We're all sinners. Now, John has this picture here that the Lord has his ministers in his hands. That's a real comfort for me as a minister, that I am in the Lord's hands. And that lets me know, too, that the Lord has his people in his hands. Remember what the Lord Jesus said? None can pluck them from my hand, neither my Father's hand. And that ought to be a comfort for us if we're going through trouble, through difficulty. But what is, the, what is Christ doing here amidst the seven golden candlesticks? I want to just very briefly consider this, and then we'll consider it more. Look, he is walking amidst the golden candlesticks. Gold signifying here that most precious and valuable of all metals and commodity. His people are as golden candlesticks. Remember what he said, so let your light shine before men. And men don't put light under a bushel, but they put it upon a lampstand or a lampstick, don't they? And you see, the church is the true witness of Jesus Christ. And every believer, as it were, is part of that lamp. And they are golden lampstands. And the Lord's gold is only ever pure gold, isn't it? And it is described of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Malachi that he is the refiner's fire. He is the one that refines his people. And what does, he, what does he desire from the churches? Is he saying, get bigger? Is he saying, expand? You read these epistles. It's about conforming themselves to his will. Isn't it? Each and every time, he that overcometh. What is he addressing? He's always addressing sin. As he, as he walks amidst the golden lampstands, what he desires to see in that golden lampstand and in every one of his true children 
is the reflection of himself. As I look here at this pulpit lamp, it's not real gold, but I can see a reflection. And what Christ desires to see in every one of his children is the reflection of himself. He is called here, as we'll study, the first fruits. And if we're born again, we will be Christ-like. And it, it, you see, it's not about numbers. It's not about promoting some ministry or some cause. But what Christ desires in every one of us. Why did God the Father save us? Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we should be conformed to the image of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he walks amidst the lampstands, we notice here. He has them in his hand. And he, notice verse 16, out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. As he walks amidst the lampstand, he has his two-edged sword. We're told, aren't we, in Hebrews, that the word of God is as sharp as a two-edged sword. And Christ, as it were, is speaking to his churches and refining his churches through the ministry of the word of God. And it's amazing. Sometimes people say, Pastor, do you know, how, how is it you know so much about my life? What's going on right now in my life? I don't, I don't know anything going on with your life. Well, I ought to know some things. But you know, God speaks, Christ speaks by his spirit to our hearts, doesn't he? We've read here, he that heareth and keepeth his commandments, blessed. And if we feel something of that tonight, the Lord's speaking to our hearts. What is God's desire for the church? Paul says this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Every trial that we go through is to have a sanctifying effect upon our lives. Remember what Peter says? You're in manifold temptations if need be. After that you shall come forth as gold. And every Christian is refined by Christ. He walks amidst the lampstand and he desires that the church be refined. You see, the church, every church is meant to be a lampstand, to be a bright beacon in this world. What is it that should attract unbelievers to this church? It should be Christ-likeness in us. And what do we exist for? Remember what he said, So let your light shine before men, that they may praise your Father which is in heaven. The whole purpose of our sanctification is not only that we be Christ-like, but we bring glory to God. You can study the Beatitudes. After you look at the Beatitudes, immediately he says, ye are the salt of the earth, ye are the light of the world. The Christian, as he grows in measure of each one of those Beatitudes, grows in his Christ-likeness. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And he says, I, I look to the left, I look to the right, I don't see him. But I know this, after he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And the Christian will. And this whole book is and should not be just to simply arouse our curiosity with end times. It should encourage us that there is a war, and Jesus is going to win. Somebody once asked a university professor, theological professor, what's the book of the Revelation all about? One of the PhD lecturers of the theological college came in with all his learning into the toilet and said to the janitor, do you know what the book of the Revelation is all about? 
He said, I can't tell you all the details, but I can say this. There's a war, and the Lord's going to win. We know that. He's on the throne. But there's also another war. A war within our own souls against sin. And this book is meant to refine us. To warn us. To refine us. That we might be as a witness for Jesus Christ. We'll look further next time as we make progress in this word. But above all, I pray that it will be a great encouragement to us. There's so much, isn't there? A plethora of nonsense out there. And I hope that what we have to study and see will give us further light and understanding and great peace as God's people. Really looking forward to studying the Word of God and may God help us to be anchored in His Word. Not just this night, but to be anchored in Christ, who is our hope and all of our stay. Amen.